it's Chris Campbell, and welcome back to the Food Institute Podcast. It's the last week of December, and I wanted to extend some season's greetings from the Food Institute in the middle of this holiday season, and we wish nothing but health and happiness for you all in the new year. And as we close out 2021 on the Food Institute Podcast, we welcome Alex Malamatinas from Melitas Ventures to the show. He's going to help us take a look at some of the common food and beverage trends he's seen in recent history and which trends will likely continue on in the new year. Food Institute CEO Brian Choi is also hanging out with us today, and I have to say this conversation is a good one. But before we start, I just wanted to remind you to follow, like, and subscribe. If the Food Institute podcast had a holiday wish list, it would be for everyone who listens to send this off to a new listener. So thanks in advance for making our dreams come true there. So with that all out of the way, I'll start off by asking the same question I ask every guest who joins the show. How are you today, Alex? Doing well. Thanks very much for having me on board. Um, We're really excited to talk to you today, but I think it would benefit our audience if they got to know you a little bit better before we go into that conversation. So would you be able to give uh, our audience a little bit of background on yourself and also Melitas Ventures? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So um, I grew up in Europe. I uh, then moved to the U.S. for my undergrad at Stanford, uh, began my career at Morgan Stanley, and then became a global consumer investor. So I worked at uh, two New York-based hedge funds, a Soros fund and a Tiger fund, and have been an active angel investor for many years now and have always been passionate about consumer and and specifically food and beverage. So uh, about four years ago, I launched Melitas Ventures. Uh, Melitas derives from the Latin meaning of better for you opportunities. It's a New York-based venture capital fund that invests in innovative early-stage companies throughout the entire food and beverage ecosystem. So our focus is better-for-you branded products, but we also invest in supplements, food tech, uh, and ingredient innovation. We have a team of investors, operators, a gut health and digital marketing expert, uh, and we really look to work closely with our companies and and add value to them as they scale. We're typically leading or co-leading rounds, uh, seed and series A rounds and taking board roles in these companies. All right. And and so, you know, obviously there's many different types of VC firms that kind of focus on the consumer sector. You know, how would you say that Malitas Ventures differentiates itself from the other pool of VCs in the space? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, capital is a commodity these days and, you know, most founders really um, can take their pick in terms of which venture capital funds they partner with. So, you know, at Melitas Ventures, I mean, specifically, we are focused on food and beverage throughout the ecosystem. So I think, you know, any company that falls within that space, I think, you know, we have we have very strong expertise there, both through the team Um, our network of industry experts, and then our portfolio companies. And there's very strong synergies among that. Uh, But specifically, you know, we built now a broad network to see deals early ahead of most other funds. And we have a franchise that adds significant value to our founders. And so this has resulted in a very positive flywheel for us where founders of some of the most lucrative companies in the space are approaching us to lead their capital raising rounds. And, and given that we invest early, we're typically securing pro rata and super pro rata rights. So we're you know, in pole position to invest more capital behind our winners in later stage rounds. Great. 
Um, and one question I have for you is, is obviously we've seen health and wellness be a significant focus over the past two years, especially with the onset of the pandemic. What have you been seeing, you know, this year and, you know, let's even go back to last year in terms of consumer interest in, in terms of health and wellness. Um, now that we're sort of coming out of the pandemic, are you, are you seeing that, that continued acceleration of interest or, you know, have things started to wane? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Brian. So, so taking a step back, you know, we identified better for you, food and beverage, health and wellness as a long-term structural trend a few years ago. And then what happened during COVID is that it really accelerated this trend. So, you know, consumers becoming increasingly more health conscious and so consuming products like plant-based products, immunity products, very clearly these trends accelerated during COVID. Um, we're still seeing these trends continue today, and we expect these to be long-term structural trends. Obviously, there's nuances, so the rate of growth might not have, be as strong as it was uh, through in COVID, but, but it's still very strong. And, you know, an example you know, within the broader space is direct to consumer food and beverage. So, you know, this is a category that, you know, very clearly accelerated during COVID because we were all or mostly at home ordering products as opposed to going to the grocery store. Um, and, and so, you know, that very much increased during COVID. Now that, you know, we're going back to grocery stores, um, the, the trend is still accelerating, but not at the same rate. And also direct-to-consumer now has some of its own challenges, and specifically the privacy changes between Apple and Facebook has made it more expensive to acquire customers, which has challenged the whole direct-to-consumer business model. It's by no means broken, in my opinion. It's evolving, and it's probably for the better. Um, but you know, right now on the margin, companies of a certain scale, direct-to-consumer companies of a certain scale, are looking to enter retail, if it makes sense, and take sort of a more omni-channel approach. I'd like to dive in a little bit more on some of that health and wellness stuff. Alex, I know that we've seen increased, you know, immunity, immunity boosting products have definitely gotten some more interest. But what about better for you products? You know, maybe a snack that's just a little less unhealthy compared to other products. Have you seen that health halo kind of spark interest in that sector as well? Or is it more traditional, you know, focused on traditional, you know, healthy products? Do you see any kind of health halo for those types of products as well? Yeah, absolutely. So healthy snacking, you know, is a very powerful trend that also um, started before COVID. Um, and it's continuing today. You know, there was a very temporary phase at the beginning of COVID where people were stuck at home and obviously in shock with what was unfolding around the world. And so there was a temporary move back towards indulgent products. Um, but, you know, that was short lived. And right now, um, consumers are opting for healthier options. And you see, you know, some of the large established firms, some of the leaders in the space like Mondelez. Um, you know, innovating themselves, actively acquiring some of these brands. Uh, you know, in our case, it, it's also a big focus for us. So we've got Verb Energy, which is a direct-to-consumer healthy energy bar company, Rhine Snacks, healthy fruit chips. Um, and so we're, we're very excited about that trend. If you were to rank, Alex, the 
the various categories within health and wellness. So let's, you know, let's, there's functional kind of foods and beverages. There is plant-based, um, there is low sugar, no, you know, no sugar. How would you kind of rank those in terms of, you know, consumer interest in terms of from an investment, um, you know, perspective, how would you rank the various categories within health and wellness? Yeah, I think I think it's difficult to rank them because some of these are broader than others. But, you know, of the ones you mentioned, I think low to no sugar is, you know, one of the key trends. I mean, sugar is really sort of the evil of our day, the tobacco of our day. So, you know, the jury's still out in terms of whether, you know, some consumers prefer absolutely no sugar and are looking for alternatives through stevia or erythritol, et cetera. Others, you know, just prefer regular sugar, but in lower amounts. Um, so we're seeing this across the board. And in fact, we've got an investment in a company which we're very excited about called Supplant, which is a sugar, uh, a fiber-based sugar alternative that looks and tastes like sugar, but doesn't have an impact on your glycemic index. Um, and, you know, they're testing with some of the large companies and some products. So, you know, we're, we're very excited about that trend. Uh, gut health is another one that I would put high up on that list and, you know, is one that's been gaining attention recently, but I think we'll continue to do so. Um, you know, the gut being the second brain and we've a lot of literature out there and, and, and medical reports. We've got an investment in a company called Olipop, which is a prebiotic soda. It's a healthy soda um, that's also good for your gut health. And we're very excited about it because we see this as you know, the next generation of soda that's low in sugar, um, good for your gut, great tasting, very cool brand uh, that resonates with millennials. So those are, those are, I'd say, you know, two of the top trends. The other one that I would point out, which you highlighted is plant-based. And obviously, you know, there's a big debate these days about um, the extent to which the category will continue growing um, you know, beyond famously went public at, at a 20 times sales multiple, which really set the standard for a lot of the other plant-based companies in the space. And there's since been a lot of innovation where there's many sort of companies and brands innovating in the space. Um, I'm still very excited about it. I think, you know, there's plenty of growth ahead of us. What we're seeing a little bit is, is a move now away from beyond and impossible towards clean label, healthier products that are great tasting. Uh, so I'm, I'm biased, but we have an investment in a company called Abbott's Butcher that we see as one of the companies leading this new wave and getting a lot of interest from food retailers as well as food service. Uh, and so, you know, beyond and impossible have done an incredible job paving the way. But part of the challenge now is, you know, some of the consumers who are increasingly more discerning are questioning some of those ingredients. And then also, you know, when you look at sort of valuations and public market, public market performance beyond, you know, has gone from roughly a 20 times sales multiple to a 10 times sales multiple, but that's still an extremely high multiple, if you ask me, relative to the growth. So, um, you know, I think we're transitioning, but I'm still very excited about that category. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, we've we debate internally here at the Food Institute, like how big the whole plant based category 
can be on the meat side and on, on the, on the beverage you know, side, particularly on the milk side. And, you know, I think there's, there's debate whether it's going to be a, a niche category. So when I say niche anywhere from like five or maybe even up to 10% of the overall market, do you have a view on that? Are we, um, you know, are you, are you thinking that it'll go beyond that 10% of the overall market in both the kind of the meat category and the, in the milk category? What's, what's your perspective there? Yeah, I do think it's going to be bigger than 10%. And the reason for that is that, you know, initially um, plant-based is is adopting, um, you know, sort of con- consumers are adopting the products who are you know, vegetarians or vegans. But what we're seeing increasingly is flexitarians also starting to consume these products. And sort of a key change there, I mean, obviously there's the ongoing health awareness and sort of you know, benefits, if you will, of, of eating less red meat. Um, but also the fact that, you know, companies like Abbott's Butcher are now presenting products where you don't have to sacrifice on taste. And so, you know, flexitarians can enjoy, you know, a regular burger, but then the next day they can have, you know, a great plant-based uh, product. So I think that's going to continue. And as more of these products become available, through food retail and food service, um, that's going to change. And we're seeing it, right? As in food service, you know, with Beyond and Impossible, now we're seeing some of the other products and we're seeing, you know, almost all the fast food chains following suit. It's not really available at retail yet in the U.S., but what do you think about cell cultured or cultivated meat? How does that kind of affect that dynamic? Do you think that will eat into plant-based growth? Do you think that's going to kind of combat traditional animal proteins? How do you see that entering? kind of affecting the market in the next couple of years? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, cell-based is still a few years out, right? As you allude to in terms of coming to market, I think it's it's happening um, and it will be available within the next few years. Uh, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive between cell-based and plant-based. In fact, you know, cell-based, you know, they're working on things like, you know, fats, and so, you know, there's, there's, you know, some companies working on sort of combining cell-based fat with plant-based meat products, which makes the texture more like meat and, you know, produces a, a healthy and great tasting product. So I, I think there's plenty of opportunity there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Do you have a view on the the seafood element of plant based? Like, have you looked into into companies within that space? You know, obviously the 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 red meat category was the the primary focus for you know Possible and, and Beyond Meat. As this next generation of plant based companies kind of focus on the the seafood uh, side, do you have a view on just the growth trajectory of that side of plant based, or you know, what are some of the challenges? I would say, you know. Um, you know, on the plant-based side compared to the, to the red meat side. Yeah. So, so I do think, you know, the plant-based, let's say burgers have paved the way for other meat categories as well. So whole cut meat, you know, there's some, some companies working on this. It's a little bit more challenging than beef patties, but obviously we're also seeing chicken, pork, chicken nuggets. And to your question, seafood, and, and there's companies working on this. It's a little bit more challenging, I would say, but it's happening. And, um, and, and yeah, I, I'm sure this is going to be a, a very large category over the next few years. Uh, just shifting gears a little bit, I'd love to get your, your take on, you know, you mentioned direct to consumer, right? So 
you know, obviously we've seen a huge boost in, you know, DTC over the past 18 months. Um, many of these early stage companies thrived during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, as you well know, you know, at a certain point, um, DTC companies or DTC focused companies um, to maintain that growth have to kind of look at other avenues like like food retail. So, you know, there are a couple of companies that, you know, in your current portfolio, you know, that focus on DTC, how are you looking at um, or advising these companies to continue on that up, upward trajectory of growth? Are you advising them to look at other other avenues? You know, what's your take there? Yeah, so I think, uh, I mean, there's a few things, but just to highlight a couple reasons as to why, you know, direct-to-consumer uh, is becoming so widely available. Firstly, consumers love the convenience, right? So increasingly, we want to be able to just order everything at our fingertips, whether it's through our computers or iPhones. Um, and obviously, Amazon with Whole Foods is sort of was very early in that trend. And so that's that's going to continue. The other element to this is that Facebook and Instagram, you know, gave rise to a lot of these brands that were able to acquire customers uh, early on, as opposed to you know the large established brands, which has typically dominated that space and were historically the only ones that could spend on TV um, and other sort of expensive media platforms. So. You know, that's given birth to some of these successful direct-to-consumer companies, and I think that will continue even though the space has become more challenging. The reality is these brands can scale to a certain point, whether it's 30 or 50 million plus. And at that point, you know, if you really want to scale further, it typically makes sense to go into retail. So for some of our brands that have now reached that scale or, or further, we're certainly exploring um, an omni-channel approach. So Alex, I know earlier you said that we were talking really about, you know, incredibly high valuations. And I think that's a trend we've kind of seen so far this year. So I was wondering if you could just kind of explain that a little bit more, what you're seeing here. Do you think they are too high? Do you think things are going to change in the new year? What do you see as far as food and beverage company valuations in the current day? Yeah, so the short answer is valuations are very high, and it's certainly one of our bigger challenges, I would say. Again, you know, capital is a commodity. There's so many venture capital funds. There's family offices, high net worth individuals. So there's not a lack of funding opportunities for, for companies and, and specifically great companies. And clearly, we've been living in a low interest rate environment now for over a decade that plus you know all the innovation that's been happening and I think continues to happen. So I think what we're experiencing is both structural and cyclical. I think the innovation in early stage consumer and, and food and beverage will continue. Um, I don't think the cycle will continue forever. I mean that's you know that's economics. I, it, it's obviously very hard to predict how long how much longer this cycle continues, but you know, interest rates have started rising. Um, and so valuations, you know, for, for next year will still be high, I think, but it's not, it's not going to continue forever. So I think it's important, you know, for investors, but also for founders to, to be conscious of that and, and try to be mindful about picking the right partners and, and building solid foundations for their businesses. Because the risk is, you know, you raise too much money at a very high valuation, 
the cycle changes or you have a couple mis missteps and then there's down rounds. So there's really a balance, I think, in terms of uh, determining um, the right valuations. And I think a big part of the challenge is, uh, you know, valuations for some of these publicly traded companies, whether it's a Beyond or a DoorDash are extremely high. And part of the reason for that is also the scarcity value. If you look at sort of the public markets, there's really not another option to invest in a large plant-based uh, company or plant-based meat alternative company. And DoorDash, you know, there's few other options. So, you know, as more companies um, start going public in the space, that's also going to start uh, normalizing valuations. Alex, when you talk to companies and, you know, the topic of valuation comes up, what's the typical evolution of that conversation? Because, you know, just to give you an example, I, I, was, I was speaking to a company earlier last week and, you know, they're going through an investment round. The investors think the valuation is around two to three million. The owner has a valuation 10 times what, you know, around the 20 to $30 million range, right? So obviously that's, that's a huge disconnect, but, you know, tell us about kind of the conversations that you're having, particularly around some, you know, these better for you companies and how the discussion um, kind of evolves, you know, and ultimately to, to investment. Yeah, well, what's interesting is, you know, in, in, in many cases, you know, the founders and, and to a large extent, I understand this, but the founders are looking at this from purely a dilution perspective. I own X percent of the company. And then if we raise this amount, you know, a certain valuation after that, I, I own, you know, a, a lower multiple of, of the company. So they're looking at it from that perspective. And then the investors are typically looking at, you know, what's the revenue, what's the revenue growth, what sort of multiples, what are the comps, you know, any profitability or cash flow metrics. Um, and then it's, you know, that's a negotiation. And I think it's also a question of, you know, again, capital being commodity, investors really sort of proving themselves, not just as trusted partners, you know, which is probably the most important, but then also demonstrating that they can really increase the value of the business over time. And so, you know, there are founders that really see the value of that and realize that it's more than just a one-time raise and, you know, are in this for the long haul. The other thing that, you know, related to your question is that what we saw kind of, you know, pre-COVID was very much an era where investors were just funding for growth and, you know, really not thinking that carefully about unit economics, profitability, and potential to generate cash flow. You know, as an investor, I've always been focused on that. And I think that served us well going into COVID. And it's great to see that now many more investors and founders are, are thinking about, you know, from day one, what's my gross margin? What are the unit economics? You know, we're burning cash now, but how many years is it going to take before we start generating cash flow? And I think that's building really the foundation for the you know future generation of companies, whether it's direct to consumer or plant based, that will be, you know, large companies, but also healthy, profitable, and hopefully cash generative uh, businesses, which ultimately will deserve higher valuations. 
I have a quick question for you, Alex, regarding the pandemic and how it may have shifted your viewpoints on investing and just venture capital in general. So I was wondering, you know, could you share a little bit about how it may have changed your perspective a little bit? But also, I'm also interested in knowing how you kind of coached your portfolio companies as well, considering the supply chain crunch and all the other associated issues we've seen over the last 18 months. Could, could you share a little bit of your thinking on that? Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, just reiterating the point where, you know, the focus on profitability and you and, and you and strong unit economics is just so crucial it's not you know just about growth um, and so really thinking through ways in which you know we could cut costs um, strengthen margins and also you know extend runway because you know when covid first hit I mean we still don't know but we still you know we didn't know how long it was going to last and what the funding environment was going to be like and so you know, number one, you know, the most important factor is is to survive. Um, and so the extent to which you can extend runway, I think, is is very important for any company, let alone an early stage company. You, you allude to the supply chain. I mean, that's absolutely critical. And so, you know, for the majority of our companies that are U.S. based, you know, we focused on ways where they could source virtually all of their ingredients uh, domestically. Um, because it became a lot more challenging to source ingredients from abroad. And obviously, now we're seeing a lot of uh, delays. Obviously, that's not possible for every company, but to the extent that you can, or at least introduce the flexibility, um, that's, that's certainly very important. You know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you as a, um, as a seasoned VC investor, Alex, there are certain companies or certain investments that have just been stellar and, you know, beyond your expectations, obviously, obviously there are some that are less than seller. Can you kind of share a few examples? It doesn't have to be this year, but over the past three years where, you know, um, you know, your investment thesis kind of worked better than you expected. And then others where hadn't worked out um, as well. And you don't have to name you know, specific companies or names, but just wanted to kind of share that perspective with our audience who, you know, um, is intrigued in, in this space. So, you know, please share. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say, you know, at a high level, sort of picking companies in the right space um, that had, you know, strong fundamentals with great teams, um, well executed, obviously benefiting from some cyclical and structural uh, tailwinds. Um, and specifically, I'm happy to mention a couple examples. Nom Nom, which is a direct-to-consumer pet food company. Magic Spoon, which is a healthy direct-to-consumer cereal brand. And so both these companies, you know, have differentiated product offerings and operated, you know, in categories that really experienced tremendous growth um, and they've been able to, to lead the charge. So these are companies that have scaled, uh, you know, beyond our expectations um, and we're very excited about them. In terms of, you know, companies that haven't executed as well, uh, you know, I would say it's, it's largely been, say, retail-based companies that struggled during COVID. Obviously, COVID was a very unexpected event. Um, building, uh, you know, an early-stage brand in retail is expensive, um, particularly, you know, if the margins aren't there and there's, you know, a couple of missteps, that makes it very challenging. And there's very little room for error for, for some of these early-stage brands. Got it. You know, one, one of the ideas, um, you know, that consistent themes that, that we're seeing is that for these early stage companies, just, just the importance of the founder, 
right? And their, and their leadership and experience, right? So you mentioned profitability, unit, 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 uh, unit economics, you know, that makes complete sense. But tell us how you can spot the next great CEO and founder that, you know, takes company from, let's say, one, two billion to 20 million, maybe even 50 million. Like, what are the characteristics of these, of these founders that, um, that are, that they're able to, to really execute on, on their vision and their growth plans. Absolutely. I mean, founders are probably the single most um, important uh, criteria, right? And, um, and it's challenging because, you know, every founder is different and has his or her strengths and weaknesses and beyond, you know, their strengths and weaknesses. What, what we've come to realize is it's not just about spotting talent. It's about spotting a founder where we can really work together and collaborate. And, you know, we might not always agree, but generally share the vision um, and continue to, you know, collaborate through, through good and bad times. So we spend a lot of time getting to know these founders. In fact, you know, sometimes it's, it's a year or two before we ultimately invest. So we love meeting founders from day zero or day one and getting to know each other, helping each other. And then it becomes quite organic by the time they, you know, go to raise their seed or series A round. But ultimately, you know, to try to generalize, I mean, I think you you want to see passion. I mean, this is, you know, these are very difficult enterprises. Um, so you want to see, you know, very passionate founders that have a vision, that recognize their strengths and weaknesses. And so look to build, you know, a team and advisors and investors around them that can help them scale the company because no one person can build a, a very large company on their own. All right, Alex. So a couple of things we talked about today could be seen as trends coming in the new year. I know we talked about plant-based and increasing technology, but what's on your radar for the new year? If you could pick three trends, say, that would be really important for the food and beverage industry next year, what would you say they are? Yeah, absolutely. So beyond the three we discussed, which is <clears throat> gut health, sugar alternatives, plant-based meats. One that we're very excited about is food tech. So technology applied to the restaurant and QSR industry. You know, these are large antiquated industries that really haven't seen innovation or significant innovation in decades. And so, you know, in one of our investments, Pressy Taste, it, it has a AI-based technology that caters to quick service restaurants or fast food restaurants. And the way it works is through very subtle video cameras that sit, you know, over um, where the people are preparing the food and preparing the order for customers. And it automatically reorders the food and ingredients that they're running short of. So what, what this solves for is it cuts a uh, you know, layer of costs, so reduces labor costs, which is very important for each of these fast food stores that typically operate on relatively slim margins. And then the other critical point is that it reduces food waste. And that's you know, a huge focus for the large companies and, and, and really the world. Um, so you know, this is just one example of a company that's using technology to increase efficiencies uh, throughout the restaurant and fast food industry. Great. Um, so Alex, you know, appreciate your time uh, coming on the Food Institute podcast. Uh, two questions, uh, closing questions for you. 
if there are any companies that are interested in learning about Melitas Ventures as an investor, how do they contact you? And the second question is, is if there are any investors interested in, in investing in one of your funds, please share with our audience um, how they can um, get involved with you how they can invest in um, your fund. Yeah, I appreciate that, Brian. So, you know, we're always happy to talk to, to founders that are building innovative companies in the space. Uh, you can reach out to us uh, through our website. We have an email address, info at melitasventures.com. You know, as far as uh, raising capital, we've, we've now raised uh, about $85 million through our two funds. So currently investing through our second fund, but we'll likely be raising our third fund um, at some point later next year. So always happy to speak to investors uh, about our investment strategy and our plans. All right, perfect. Thank you again for your time today, Alex. Great. Thank you very much for having me on board. It's hard to believe that's the last episode of the Food Institute podcast in 2021, but here we are. I want to thank our listeners for sticking with us all year, and I want to wish you all a happy and healthy 2022. We'll see you in the new year. This is Chris Campbell signing off. (music) 